Hello, welcome to James's pre-fight, post-fight MMA show, where we recap all the important things happening in the sport of MMA, and I, your host James, try to explain to you what's going on in the sport and make it as easy as one, two, three for you to understand. We hope you enjoy the show. And welcome back to the podcast, everyone. This is your host James. We are here to talk about again a little recap of UFC 261. We're going to preview UFC 262. How am I doing? How are you doing? But most importantly, how is the UFC going to deliver with this Saturday's card? I was going to open up this episode with a little Tracy Chapman, but Corporate Jake says that maybe we should be careful to be copyrighted, so I'm going to check with that next week. Perhaps maybe I could actually get some real music in this podcast if we check the copyrights, which hopefully um you know they'll we'll look into. But right now, what I'm excited for, what I want to get into, is UFC two sixty two Oliveira versus Michael Chandler, fighting for the vacant UFC one hundred fifty five pound title. Let me just take a look at my notes here. Yes, they are written. That does seem very old-fashioned because I am an old soul. So, I just want to go over a little bit of UFC 261, Usman versus Masvidal. Let's go over, um, maybe let's just do the first three main events. And then, if uh, I, feel, I see fit, maybe we'll talk a little bit about them. Um, some of the undercard stuff, but we'll see. Mostly the main events I want to get over. So, Valentina Shevchenko versus Jessica Andrade. Yes, I did say that I felt like Andrade could really give Valentina some problems. And Valentina basically did the strategy I thought Andrade should do. Yeah, I didn't realize, I forgot. I didn't realize that Andrade in the clinch, if you push her back, maybe because we haven't seen her really get pushed back in the clinch that much in her UFC career. That her footing kind of gets a little bit all over the place. And that's why you saw Shevchenko really succeed with her throws and trips. Because the balance of Andrade couldn't be kept to any stability to defend those takedowns. And then eventually Valentina got the um, crucifix. Which is basically you pin the arm and you pin another arm with your shin. And then you just go to town with strikes to the head. And she did a great job. She showed once again why is she one of the most dominant champions in UFC history. And that she um she's great at um being super well rounded, keeping distance and just having an answer for a lot of big part of the MMA game. She has an answer on the grappling, offensively and defensively. I don't think a lot of people talk about that. You could be a great grappler, you know, when you're put on your back foot, right? You get a lot of guys like <clears throat> excuse me. Get yeah, a lot of guys like Luke Rockhold, who's great at jiu-jitsu, great top game, but most of the time he takes that, what I like to call the Diaz approach, where he pressures guys with strikes, with distance, forces them to shoot, and he gets on top of them in a scramble, gets a submission or something. And I always say, what happens if you feel you don't feel comfortable with standing with somebody and you want to take them down? Then your step one is already gone. You're striking, you can't pressure them because your striking isn't working and Valentina has been able to show that she could really do it all 
with her grappling. You know, take people down, defend takedowns, things like that. And uh, submissions from her back, from on top. She's she's an excellent fighter all around. By far, the most surprising thing, 100%, has to be Rose Namajunas dethroning Weili Zhang. I did think that perhaps th- when they had the press conferences... Excuse me, let me just take a sip of my water. And no, but I do not have a sponsor for any bit of water. I did think that perhaps Wei Li was going to be affected by the crowd because when I was in Las Vegas for the Yoana Yang Jicek fight, everybody adored her, even the media, right? Like, she was this fighter who everybody was waiting for for so long. Wow, a Chinese fighter. In MMA, a Chinese champion, like right, just having a UFC fighter from China who's on the top of the heap is kind of something special in the sport. But to have some somebody who's a champion's even more so. And when she arrived in Vegas against Joanna, she was cherished. Um, people loved her. I, I felt like the media, even Dana, was a little bit sort of on her her side. I'm not accusing Dana to be biased, but I remember when they said, what do you think about this co-main event? And Dana said that, um, you know, that he, that Wei Li Zhang, oh, you got to see her training videos. She, like, trains like crazy. The stuff she does is amazing. And Yoana Yanjic, oh, all she's doing is she's on the beach. I remember that interview. And you could see how much the people want to get behind her. And I remember in Vegas, there's a huge Chinese crowd, which is amazing. It's great to always see a fighter be supported by her, by his or her fans. And she came out, you know, confident. She looked calm, cool, collected. And then when um, she fought Rose, she was being booed. She almost looked unsure. In the presser, she was being booed. At the weigh-in, she was being booed. Um, and perhaps that has a lot to do maybe with the... with. Our country's going through right now with racism. I would most likely think so. I mean, Wei Li, in my eyes, she's never been anything else but a sweetheart in terms of personality. She seems very nice. And I think she she took that a little personally, where maybe. Because Rose said that, you know, Wei Li was very complimentary to her in interviews. That she said that, oh, this is two martial artists fighting. But as soon as those comments came out about Rose and what she thinks... Certain things came out in interview, you know, took out of context. Um, Whaley didn't really shake her hand. I mean, she shook her hand. She didn't, like, talk to her ever. Like, Rose said this is the first opponent who's she's never even spoken to. So I thought that was a little strange. And maybe that kind of dulled her reaction, dulled her, um, her timing a little bit, perhaps. And the fight, you know, Rose won via first round head kick, left high kick. The special thing about this high kick was that she pendulum into it. She she didn't switch. Switching is like when, you know, your stance, your left foot's front, your right foot's in the rear. And then you switch your feet, your right foot is in the, your rear foot's in the front, and your lead foot's in the rear. And then you kick, you get a lot of power because your right leg is anchoring that left leg. But uh, you get traditional martial art backgrounds. Like karate or taekwondo, even um, you know Bruce Lee's jiu-jitsu and savat, French kickboxing savat, um, they do it a lot where they'll the the right leg will go up to the left leg, 
so it'll be on the same line. And then the left leg just lifts. You bend your knee, and you, it's almost like a snap kick. But with that much momentum, and you get someone who's really practiced it. It takes, and it's such a cool trick because a lot of guys almost feel like it's cheating when you pinch them up to that kick, because, you know, um, you don't see it. It's hard to see when you switch the kick or when you do it badly. A switch kick, you could see somebody changing levels. You could see their head moving a little bit. But on the pendulum kick, it's kind of hard to see. And it goes better with, in my opinion, with the jab. Because the jab, you could throw out the jab. You could leave the jab out a little bit. See the person moving their head. Maybe they're going to go for a pair. And then you leave the jab up. And then you your right foot slides up. And your left leg comes up and kicks the, the head or the leg or the body. And it happens so smoothly in such a smooth transition. And that's exactly what Rose did. She wasn't having too much success in the beginning of the fight. You know, Wei Li was doing a great job of herself. She has a terrific pendulum left kick from her uh, kung fu background. And she was really trying to get at the leg of Rose Namajunas. I don't know if that was a strategy by Wei Li Jing. Of course, I, I think she thought about it. But it's also just a great part of her game. And she's really good at um, also defending leg kicks herself. And I think Rose knew that. And then you see, um, you know, Rose was trying to jab cross, jab cross into range, things like that. And every time Rose backed up, you would see Whaley was trying to follow in with her left body kick, left kick to the leg of Rose. Because Rose, you know, she has great footwork. And one thing I, I said in the preview of the fight was that Rose Namuna is kind of like Jorge Masvidal a little bit, but more so. She has that great bounce footwork where it kind of looks like she's going to come into range and it kind of doesn't look like she's going to come into range. And then when you kick her leg, you know, um, you mismanage your distance so you're actually nowhere near kicking her leg, things like that. But when you do kick, you cause that leg pain and that's a part of stamina, right? If I told you that, oh, every time you move on that foot, you're going to get pain, you're going to get hurt, then of course it's going to drop your, your confidence, your stamina to keep going a little bit at least. And I think that, and that uh, strategy of chopping that leg to get rid of the explosive footwork of a fighter, we're going to follow that through into UFC 262 as well. Uh, with two fights, actually, of, of the three I'm going to talk about. And I think Rose, she saw Wei Li reacting, and then she just threw up her left hand, her jab hand, and then the left pendulum kick came up. She smacked... Um, she just got the head kick perfectly right on the chin of Wei Li. Wei Li went down and Rose finished her off. And um, I think that... Uh, I know Wei Li protested the stoppage. I understand from her point of view, right? She is a championship fighter. You see champions uh, go on a little bit longer. But I, I didn't think... You know, she probably wasn't going to come back from that. But, you know, typically they try to caution in the air of... Um, oh, this. This person's defending the title, right? They just try to keep their title as long as they can. Um, you know, give them as many chances as they can. And great job from Rose. Um, unlike Valentina Shevchenko, where there's not a lot of title contenders to name, right? Valentina, I think she could fight Lauren Murphy. But Rose Namajunas, there's plenty of people, right? Like if Wei Li Zhang can get a win, of course that could be her. Um, Joanna Young-Jacek. She had a really close second fight with Rose. I know they fought twice and she lost. But, you know, the UFC, they seem like they want to make Volkanovski versus Max Holloway 3. Even though uh, they just literally just fought each other um, a year ago. So I, I think Joanna, that could always be a chance. Yang Shaonan is fighting Carla Sparza. I think the winner of that would be perfect because 
Yang Shaonan is a great, another fighter from China. Great speed, great length, great kickboxing, very fast. Good off her back with, from strikes. Uh, and Carla Esparza, she wins even better. Because I know Esparza, a lot of people thought of her as like, oh, she was a, a champion, a strawweight who wasn't champion for that long. But you got to give her credit. This girl's on a very sneaky win streak over Michelle Watterson, um, Marina Rodriguez, uh, a couple of other girls. So you got you got to give her credit, um, Carla. And also, she has a win over Rose. And some people question, like, I've never questioned uh, how good Rose is. I think the only reason why, in particular, experts pick against her is because she's such an artist in there. And that maybe, like, they feel that, you know, artistry is something that comes. It's not something that you can bring, really. You can't conjure, perhaps, artistry. And... Rose is at her best when she's loose and having fun and things like that, in my opinion. But, you know, just very much times where she's blown the door off of people's expectations, like the second Joanna fight where Conor, McGreg- Conor McGregor threw the dolly into the bus and we all thought, oh, Rose is not going to perform to her best. And then she ended up performing extremely well when it was going 2-2 and she was really the one who pushed the pace in the fifth round against Joanna, landing the better shots. But Carl Esparza is thought to, oh, she can bring that fight out of Rose where you're not enjoying it. It's a grind. You know, it's Rose really is well adept in jiu-jitsu and striking. Um, and Carla, that wrestling grind. Like, you see fighters like Gagey and, and Poirier and Conor McGregor, very dynamic fighters. Uh, but then when they fight, and they're, they're very good at firefights, especially Gagey, right, and Poirier. And then when they fight Khabib, it's just they take so much out of them, right? It's such a grind of a fight. There's so much to worry about. Every time, every move you make has to be more calculated because they could take you down. They could wipe out the whole round and you lose that round. And your cardio is being constantly attacked. And you're getting punched in the face, uh, perhaps, as well. So, you know, one of those. I would love to see Tatiana Suarez. If she could get one more fight in, I know she's injured. She's an Olympian, excellent fighter, long, tall for the division, big for the division. And she's beating Carlos Sparza at Carlos Sparza's own game with her wrestling. I would love to see that. Her versus Rose, that could be amazing. She's undefeated as well, so you always have that going on. For me, strawweight, it's not that. Um, you're going to see a common pattern, especially when I talk about the next fight of Usman and Masvidal too. But you'll see a pattern that... This division is so stacked, but there's not really a clear direction. Anyone knows what to take. And moving on to the main event. So Jorge Masvidal versus Kamaru Usman. Kamaru Usman knocks out Jorge Masvidal in uh, round two of their fight. Excellent fight. Um, I You know, a lot of people are like, oh, if Usman fought every time like that, then I watch him all the time. But the thing is, is that if I'm Kamar Usman, I keep doing what I do. I enjoy the fact that he's such a well-rounded guy offensively, and he brings so many things to the table. Um, so let me t- just take you through this fight first. At least um, Masvidal opens up with these terrific leg kicks, like I was saying, um, a part of the Kamar Usman, and what I call the anti-Kamar Usman game plan. You'll see that with me. I try to create game plans against guys who may seem undefeated. And it's not because I don't like them. It's just because they're so good. And I find it such a fascinating idea of how can this guy beat him? How does this guy match up? 
the Usman game plan for me, I always say you got to kick the leg. And you got to be somewhat unpredictable. But really, the leg kicks is a huge part. And Masvidal was doing a great job at that chopping at the legs of Usman, chopping at his thighs. Um, Kamaru is very well documented to have a lot of knee injuries. I believe that's what took him out of his Olympic al- uh, alternate career. Um, and plus, Usman, I know he has that really good jab. And he's always had a really good jab, even before Trevor Whitman. I just feel like now he's been using it to a better extent where he's circling with the jab. He's going to the body with the jab a little bit more to set up other strikes. Uh, and um, and he's really long. And it, it's something that's not like sometimes you get fighters who go to another gym and then they just totally change their game. But it's not like totally out of the realm of Usman. Like, oh, he's always thrown, he's always had a really good straight punch. His straight punch has always been really good. And I feel like Whitman has just made his timing better with those straight punches. And, you know, uh, I did not expect Usman to knock Masvidal out cold. And Masvidal, I think he's this is only the second time he's been finished due to strikes. Um, and the first time he got finished due to strikes, very similar where he threw the left hook. The right hand caught him in the left hook. And a lot of people argue that he shouldn't have been knocked out because... He was like still fighting. It was one of those like weird, complicated, uh, referee like stoppages things, but um, it's a very similar shot. I feel like Usman saw in the first fight whenever they they started to engage, Masvidal would always start with a left hook and then a jab, and I felt like Usman felt confident that he could get the timing right and throw the right hook, um, into that the right his right straight into the left hook, especially when you have a a longer reach that um. That's always uh, assisted a little bit more. And um, basically, you know, Maslow starting off with the leg kicks, doing a great job of chopping them down. Um, you know, I would like to see a little bit more body work from Maslow. You know, right straights to the body, I thought, uh, were brilliant from him. You know, it delays a little bit the timing of the Usman right hand because typically um, Kamaru Usman's a guy who primarily, which is nothing wrong with it, I think it's... It's fantastic that he does this. Is that he typically every strike that's coming at him, he feels like it's always his head, which is the right thing to do, of course. And you'll see, like he'll he'll try to slip or he'll pull back, um, and then try to counter right hand. And uh, usually, when you're slipping, you know you're using head movement or you're trying to catch a punch, you're trying to block a punch, and you're trying to counter off of the blocker for that catch. Um, the great thing about it is that you know that guy's in range. Right, because you feel it, the punch getting closer or something. And Masvidal threw this nice right straight, and then Usman kind of delayed his right hand. So perhaps maybe that'll be something everybody looks at uh, for the next fight with Usman. But, uh, you know, didn't have too much of an effect. Masvidal didn't really go back to that too much. And Masvidal threw a flying knee, and um, Usman double underhooks. Um, very well-known takedown he does. Probably his best takedown, in my opinion. Body lock trip where, you know, the the opponent will think it's, um, he's pushing them face forward. And then their weight will go to their butt. And then he'll assist you. So basically, he will push you on the side your butt's going. So he will help you go to that side. Got him down. You could tell that he was going more for the finish. Because Kamara Usman is, you know, um, like, for example... Fighters, and we're going to talk about this later on, Michael Chandler and Charles Oliveira and things like that. Um, typically, wrestlers, they don't like to put the hooks in the back. 
usually. Unless you're like an Algernon Sterling or a Tony Ferguson of some sort. But usually they like to just get in this referee's position where you're, the opponent's on his hands and knees. And then they'll, um, they'll, they'll have an arm around the hip. And then they'll keep punching. And Usman is typically one of those guys. Very rarely do you ever see him take the back. I, I can't even remember a time where he took the back. Besides his UFC debut. And you can see that his grip, the way he was gripping seatbelt grip, which is where you take your two hands and kind of create a seatbelt, and then the person's in the middle of your arms and your chest. And Masvidal was very aware of that, got to his back, went full guard, landed some really nice elbows. The angle of his elbows were very good, right? He was going on his side, and he's kind of trying to, like, rake the eyes of Usman a little bit with those. And you could tell Usman, as soon as the takedown happened, he was trying to go for the finish. He was trying to make a, a spectacular win. Because even when Masvidal got up, um, and I know a lot of people are going to look at it like, oh, Masvidal's wrestling got better. I always thought Jorge's wrestling was very good. I just think that the wrestling against the fence didn't really work as well with Usman because he was trying to do stuff like he usually doesn't do, which I was curious to see because I felt like it would be easier to change his striking than it would be to change his grappling because his grappling, like, he's been doing that since day one in MMA, right? Like, as soon as, like, US, whatever fight, Kamar Usman, his, US, his MMA debut, he probably tried that chain that he does. But the striking, he probably hasn't been doing it as long. And I was interested to see, and he was trying to take the back again when Kamar, when uh, Jorge was standing up. Jorge was very aware broke the grip. And then, you know, Kamaru, one thing I'm kind of interested in, especially if Kobe Covington is the next fight for Usman. And I will feel, and going into any fight, I think Usman... Well, I'll always favor him, but he kind of looked a little fatigued. Like, his punches were getting wider. Um, his distance was very off towards the end. I think it was just probably that the lactic acid buildup from trying to keep Jorge down against the fence. Because a lot of people, like Daniel Cormier says, like, uh, wrestlers like Usman, they like to wrestle with their arms, not their legs. So I'm curious to see um, if somebody's going to try to look into that his next opponent or whatever. And you'll see that Jorge immediately was trying to get back on him. He, I felt like Masvidal knew that. Because Kamaru, he does have great stamina. But I think it's more so because he's controlling the fight, right? If I, if I, all your whole life, all you've been doing is just running, squatting, and doing push-ups. And then I said, okay, we're going to have a competition based off of those three things. You're most likely going to do very well in those things. And Usman does a great job of making sure the fight does not get too crazy. And, you know, the fight becomes about his jab, about his front kick, about his right hand, and about his takedowns. He never kind of, like, makes it about, like, oh, somebody else's takedown. Somebody else is striking. And that's why I think it was happening. Like, Jorge was trying to get him on the back foot a little bit. He got called for right cross. He got rocked. Then he comes, then Mazo lands a really good 1-2-1-2 one, two, one, two combination. And then a flying knee that, uh, you know, stuns Hurts Kamaru a little bit, and then round two comes along. Masvidal goes back to the game plan. I said, keep your distance. Throw the leg kicks. He missed one. Then, uh, you know, Jorge backs up a little bit, and then Usman throws that beautiful right cross inside the left hook of Jorge. Jorge goes down. He's out cold. And just a beautiful win by Usman. A um, couple of things to take away is that, you know, this guy, everybody's like, oh, he's not a finisher. But if I told you, you look at him, Kamaru Usman, and you go up to a person on the street, and you go, oh, would you be okay with that guy hitting you full force? 
of you not moving, you'll probably say no. When I always think about, oh, this guy can't knock people out, I always think, all right, does he have the body to do it? Does he have the athleticism to do it? And Usman, I always kind of thought he does have it. It just so happens that he usually doesn't. Like, you know, the numbers. But you got to be careful. You can't stand uh, straight in front of him. So now, uh, I don't think it's the same problem as Rose. But Kamaru, it's like he's beaten Kobe. He's beaten Jorge twice. He's beaten Leon a while ago. I don't really like to count that because I think Leon could give a good account of himself in that fight. And he's beaten um, Gilbert Burns, right? So that's four of the top five. And we're looking into, all right, now we're starting to get into the territory of who cares about who deserves it. It's who will make the most intriguing fight against them. I think that's what people are looking for. And, of course, Kobe Covington will always be an intriguing fight because I do think Kobe has improved. And But the thing is about the reason why I'll always favor Usman a little bit more than Kobe is I do feel like Kobe could do some good work with his kicks to the body, his kicks to the head, his kicks to the leg. I do think Usman struggles with lefties because when Masvidal went lefty in the first fight, this fight, Damian Maya even gave him trouble a little bit in the striking. Colby, the first fight, RDA, even on the feet, gave him a little bit of trouble. I think all those southpaws, there's got to be some kind of strategy that's based off the left stance that you can beat him. Also, you kind of neutralize his jab a little bit more, so the volume will go down. And I kind of want to see somebody, if they could put Kamaru on the back foot. And not in the back foot like, oh, he's moving backwards because he has done that a little bit against Gilbert Burns. But somebody who could be patient when um, pushing him back a little bit. That's something I think Gilbert didn't do. He was kind of rushing, going forward, throwing hooks, not being killing Usman with patience because I thought in that fight with Gilbert, he had great leg kicks. And if he just makes Usman stand at range eating those kicks, Usman will come to him and then Gilbert could let it go. And I think Jorge was trying to do a similar strategy. But Jorge said himself, he thought that the right hand was a takedown. So you need somebody who has good enough trust in their wrestling and their grappling. Who could at least uh, disrupt the chain that Kamar Usman does. And preferably somebody who could stick strikes in front of his face. Right, That's, that's what he typically does everybody else. And uh, with Kobe, I think that Kobe has more diverse striking slightly. Like, he kicks with his right leg. Usman does not switch at all. Every kick he throws will always be from the back leg. He typically always throws jabs and crosses. Uh, he likes to keep distance nowadays. Um, whenever he's in the pocket, Usman basically just spams, like, right hands to the body. And I think that Kobe, he just has a little bit more. Like, he moves his head more. Defense is a little bit more of a... Like, actual defense, like catching, slipping punches, reactive takedowns. I think also Kobe's takedowns are better set up. Like, you won't see Usman typically. He will not. Somebody rushes at him and he goes for a takedown. And it's very effortless. Like, he's usually, like, puts you against the fence. Grind, grind, grind. Static position, static position, static position. Punch, 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 static position. Gets you down eventually. Um, <clears throat> Kobe... He'll typically see guys, if he starts to move back and somebody comes in with a big punch, he'll level change, get a takedown. And it seems effortless because the guy's weight is going all forward. The guy does half of the work for him. And I think Colby's a little bit, is uh, actually much better at that. And 
Also, his responses are more built for fighting another wrestler. Like, Usman likes to keep people down. Covington understands that people will get up, and then he'll try to get a better position for the takedown. So that fits if he were to wrestle Kamaru. But Usman is way bigger than him. You know, this guy, this is a guy who's talking about fighting at 185, and Kobe, a lot of people say that he could probably fight at 165. And even when they wrestled in college, Kobe used to wrestle 163, Usman used to wrestle 175. So there is a big difference in weight between the two. And then there's a big difference in reach, right? Usman fights longer and he has longer arms. And also, that's why I say Kamaru, the basis of his style is so terrific. It's, it's that he's so physical. Physical and power, physical and strength, everything. And he pushes you um, physically all the time. And Covington, I think he does that. But Covington has to use more uh, trickery. Uh, not trickery, but he has to use a little bit more wide range of weapons to go on. And um, when you're a shorter guy versus a taller guy, the shorter guy, everything matters more. right? You, you got to have more defense. You got to have more striking ability. You cannot rely on hit and then just standing there because you're farther away, right? Usman could do that with certain guys. Um, Kobe cannot do that. He cannot just jab and and stick and move and use distance to really beat Usman. Usman can do that. That's why I think Usman will always be a favorite in that fight. Um, And Kobe, I definitely think he can win, but... He kind of has to have the perfect game plan. It's kind of like Poirier versus Connor, right? It's like, we cannot miss a step. You have to chop the legs. You have to make sure you defend the takedown. You have to make sure you push it back at least. You have to make sure that you're pressing at the right moments. You're not pressing at the wrong moments. You're not in front of him all the time. Things like that. So, I, that's why I think um, Usman will always be the favorite. I, of course, I, I would love to see him fight the winner of Leon Edwards versus... Um, Nate Diaz, especially if Leon wins, I think Leon could really bring some interesting things. Uh, Leon's great in the clinch, great at offensive clinch. So, like, when guys go for takedowns, he's really good at elbowing. Great body kicks. His body kick is superb. It's very hard to catch. It's so fast and quick, and it's really non-telegraph Leon. And, and Leon fits that he's a southpaw. And then, interesting enough, Usman's uh, very long and tall and big for the division, which I always talk about. But Leon, he's not super big. I, I think he was more muscular in his than usual in his last fight against Bilal Muhammad. But he is very, very tall, and I think he's taller than Kamaru. I think he's like, I think Leon's like six two, very long for the division, six two, six three, something like that. So that that's the recap of UFC two sixty one. Um, moving on to UFC two sixty two. So I'm gonna cover three fights. Three fights. I feel like the the. The casuals and the hardcore should pay attention to. The first one is Shane Burgos, the number nine ranked featherweight, versus Edson Barboza, the number thirteen ranked featherweight. So Edson, up and down. We thought at this point he probably would have fought for a UFC title, but he hasn't. It just shows you because he used to fight at one hundred fifty five pounds, and his losses. He's had fights with Khabib, Kevin Lee, Justin Gaethje, Paul Felder, all these very top names, Dan Hooker. Um, very huge names in the UFC the um lightweight division, and you know he he's lost, but it just shows you in my opinion how stacked this division is, and Shane Burgos coming off a loss against Josh Emmett, um he's thirty years old, five eleven, seventy five inch reach, trains at Tiger Shulman's, comes out of Brooklyn, New York, Edson Barboza thirty five years old, so he will be older, five eleven, same height, seventy five inch reach, same reach. 
fights of America top team. Burgos, what you got to know about him? He's a very good boxer, great head movement, good leg kicker, especially with his left leg. Very, very big for the division. Um, so I think size-wise, he's going to be able to go toe-to-toe with Edson. And really, Edson Barboza, he's like one. Of the, he's the only fighter to win via head kick, body kick, and leg kick. He, he's chopped guys down so much for those things. And he's, he has kicks from both sides, his right leg, left leg, um, wheel kick, spin kick, spinning back kick to the body. He's beautiful at Love hook to the body he's very good at. If you're, uh, he has a pretty good jab. But for me, what I'm looking at is that Barboza, typically he loses to guys who could really, really pressure him um, and get into boxing. Because even though he can knock you out with the hands and he does somewhat have strong boxing, Barboza will get very crazy in the pocket. He will not keep calm and he'll kind of go all over the place sometimes. And I think Burgos, he's so calm in the pocket. He has beautiful head movement. And that's what those guys at Tiger Showman do. They they um, really prepare with the fundamentals. They have terrific fundamentals over there at that school. And Edson, for me, I think for him, the key... To, so Burgos would be don't step up, take a step back, which I think he could do because in his last fight, even though he lost, was a fight of the year candidate against Josh Emmett. He was basically going forward, throwing the jab, throwing the left hook to the leg, and he was getting rocked. He was getting pinged, but that was against a great boxer in Josh Emmett. And I think Edson Barboza is not going to have that success with the hands. So for Barboza, and you're going to see me talk about this later on with some other fighters in this card. But with Edson Barboza, he's going to have to uh, occupy the center line. So what I mean. So Burgos, typically, he doesn't cut angles. He doesn't switch stance, any of that stuff. He's going to have to throw something down the middle, preferably to the body, to keep Burgos away. Because... If I told you that um, you got to come towards me in this direction. But every time you come towards me, I want to tase you. I'm gonna go sh- the taser is just going to go straight out. That's all it's going to do. And every time you move, I'm going to tase you. So it's going to take you longer and longer to get towards me. So I just going to have to do that. And that's a problem. That's been a problem a little bit for Edson Barboza because some of his punches are a little bit loopy. Like specifically his right hand. He has a great left hook to the body, but still there's not a straight line. And his, of course, his, his spinning back kick to the body is amazing. The leg kicks are amazing. But all those are straight uh, round shots besides the spinning back kick. And that takes a little bit of time to set up. So I think he's got to throw that front kick down the middle or the knees to the middle. He, he has terrific knees from the tight clinch. And he's got amazing knees even from distance. And he's going to need to do that against Shane Burgos. And Burgos, and for Edson Barboza, he's not going to have to worry about the takedown. Of Burgos because his takedown average is almost as low as um is almost as low as Edson Barboza's. So it doesn't really affect Edson's game, which Edson basically you just want to get him tired as you can. That's basically the whole goal of the fight. And then you could pressure him, you could get him tired, you could, you know, do things like that. And I think Burgos hundred percent knows that that's the strategy to the fight. Um and uh, so it comes down to Burgos pressure. And if Barboza is just, and people don't account for this, the guy could be way faster than everyone. And that, if he's way faster than Burgos could react, then that's going to be a huge problem. Because if he could fit in a body kick and then go to the head, it's going to do some serious damage. That is the scary part about Edson Barboza is that 
you're not fighting to win. You're also fighting to not get, like, your brains knocked out of you. And also, Bur- and we want to talk about the stamina of Barboza. He He's such a fast twitch muscle fiber fighter, meaning that everything happens like lightning with him. All his punches, especially his kicks, are so quick. It's, it's like something of a movie. But Shane Burgos, he... You gotta remember that his last fight against Josh Emmett, he took some serious damage in that. Like, a lot. And he's gotta be really careful in this fight. Especially if, you know, he gets a little lazy with his head movement, or he's dropping his hands, or anything, and Barboza ends up clocking him with a, a straight right, or anything, that uh, any boxing type of technique. He's gotta be really careful. And if he misreads kicks, things like that, especially when pressuring forward, right? You're not keeping your distance, so your reaction's gotta be even more on point. For me, it's going to come down to my pick. I think, uh, personally, Shane Burgos is going to win. And it's not because of skill or anything. I am a gigantic fan of um, watching Edson Barboza. And Barboza is a plus 108, so no bet, really. Um, But I do think this fight will end in a finish because these two guys are just crazy when it comes to finishing ability. I know Barboza hasn't finished anyone in recently, ever since I think like 2016. But uh, at this featherweight division, he does pack a huge punch. And Burgos, you got to count for the damage he's taken. And then for Burgos, I think he can, he's going to try to break his will or break his body, one of the two. And I think he could get that done. And for me, the statistic that really points out to me. Is the volume between the two. They both take a similar amount of strikes. But the volume is huge. Burgos lands 7. 7.31 strikes per minute. 7. That's crazy. Barboza lands 4. Around. 3.98. I think that's going to be huge for Burgos. And especially since he's a boxing. You know he has great kicks. <coughs> Excuse me. Let me take a sip of water. Sorry about that. He has great kicks, but I think if he can get combination striking going, make Barboza pay for the lack of head movement. Get him moving. Get him to reset. Get him tired. I think Burgos could do that, and I think he knows that, and I think he will do that on Saturday night. UFC 262. Come watch it. I am not sponsored by ESPN Plus at all. Just enjoy everything. So the next fight. Tony Ferguson versus Benio Darius. This is the co-main event. Originally, this fight was supposed to be, um, I mean, the comment of him was originally supposed to be Nate Diaz versus Leon Edwards, which is booked for next month, which I will get to. I'm very excited for that fight. So now this moves up to the co-main event in Houston, Texas. Forgot to tell you guys. I got so overwhelmed. I apologize. Both a full crowd. Yes, yes. Like the Jacksonville fights. Yes. Tony Ferguson's ranked number five lightweight in the world. He is the former interim champion. Some of you may know him from when he had the pandemic fight against Justin Gagey, which he got TKO'd in the fifth round. He's 26 and 5. He is 5'11, 76 inch reach, which is going to be a huge part for this fight. BJJ Black Belt under Eddie Bravo. Former interim UFC champion, 37 years old. Um, Benio Dariush, 20 and 4, 5'10. 72-inch reach, so 4-inch reach disadvantage. He comes from a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu background, but he does have great striking. So does Ferguson. And trains out Kings MMA. Is 32 years old. So, what you got to know about these? 
two guys. So Tony Ferguson is the easier one to talk about. So we'll get to him first. He, um, Tony's 37, so he is a little bit, he is a bit older, especially for lightweight. You typically don't see guys that old. And for him, you know, I always kind of felt bad for him because he was consistently fighting for a long time. He, he was at least fighting twice a year, once a year, maybe. And Habib and him were always scheduled to fight. And Tony fought for an interim belt and he had an interim belt. And then him and Habib were scheduled for a fourth time. It falls out. And, um, you know, Habib fights Ally Quinta, who really wasn't, like, had a high amount of momentum going into the fight. Habib beats him via decision. And they made that fight for the undisputed belt. And then, you know, they kept trying to book Tony versus Habib over and over again, things like that. And you kind of felt bad for Tony because, um, you know, he had some personal issues. So that delayed the fight being booked. Then he loses to Gagey. All right, that's not great. And you feel bad because this guy was constantly being willing to fight the best of the best over and over again. Whoever was next in line. And the thing I felt bad was that, you know, this guy was fighting like all these, uh, booking all these fights. He was on this terrific win streak and lightweight. Actually, a longer win streak than Habib at the time because Habib had a catch, couple catchweight fights with his weight. Um, and then Tony... You know, all of a sudden, he's ready to go. The time where he gets injured, oh, now we're making him for the undisputed belt. So, Ferguson never got that paycheck. Right? He never got that recognition. So, now everybody just knows, oh, this guy won an interim title. And it's not his fault that every time him and Habib are booked, something happens. Right? It's not his fault. Like It's not Habib's fault either. But I was like, wow, this guy keeps fighting over and over again. And at that time, his resume was a lot better than Habib's, in my opinion, at the time, um, in terms of UFC names. And he kind of doesn't get the title fight, right? He um, As soon as Habib's ready, oh, then we made it for the undisputed belt. So you kind of feel bad a little bit for him. And so now he's coming off a two-fight losing streak, one against Gaethje and one against Charles Oliveira, who's fighting for the title on the same day. And... It kind of... Those fights, I'll be honest. Like, everybody's like, oh, he's getting old. Oh, he's not the same. But to be honest, I kind of thought those things could always happen to Tony. Like, Gagey, one thing... I wish I had the podcast back then. Because then I could have said, like, oh, Gagey... The way Gagey fought was was the way I, I, I would hope he would... Like, this is the game plan I think he should do to win. Not to pat myself on the back or anything. But the way I always thought you could beat Tony Ferguson is either you got to have way superior grappling him, take him down, smother him, stay on top. Don't let him scramble because he's brilliant at that. Or if you want to strike with him and you can't get him down or whatever, you decide to strike with him. Distance control is a huge part of the fight. Cardio and choosing when to exchange with him and going to the body is very important because he moves his head so much. But he doesn't... His feet will always be in the same place. That's like how everybody is. And Gagey was doing a great job of that. And then Tony, I think, was just getting beat up so much at range that he needed to close distance. And that's what led to the counter-punching of Justin Gagey. And I thought it was a brilliant performance by Gagey. And then he fights Charles Oliveira. And Charles was doing something similar in the first round of their fight. Moving back, throwing out beautiful jabs, uh, crosses... And then really beating up the legs of Tony Ferguson. 
and getting the takedown. And Tony, despite him being a very good wrestler in college, he's never really had great MMA wrestling. Like, he kind of, like, his pummel, his pummel game, his clinch game is not the best. He almost kind of, like, lets guys take him down because he's so confident on his back. But Charles Oliveira is a stud on top, on the bottom, especially now as he gets older because Charles starts to understand that not everything's about submissions. Sometimes it's about winning the round, staying on top, beating the guy up, getting him tired. And Tony almost broke his arm. Tony almost got submitted a couple of times. And it's a question because I think personally those fights, it was just, I kind of always thought those two guys would beat him. If they were on their game, of course. And Tony, like, it's not like he's not tough anymore because the armbar he got stuck in against Charles would have tapped out everyone, anyone. Um, so that's the question now. Is Has he fallen so often confidence and physically or anything when he's going to come up against Dariush, who is very well-rounded, got great striking, has shown better power now, and uh, has good wrestling for a grappler? And Dariush is a guy who, despite being 32 years old, he's been in the UFC for a very, very long time. Uh, very experienced. And I know that he himself said that he thought this fight would come sooner, but he hit a couple slumps. And it really is inspirational to see Bernil Dariush in this position. Because the guy was looked at as a goal. This is a guy who's very good skill-wise, but he's not in that realm yet, a title contender. And if he gets this win, he will be in that realm. And... For me, I think the interesting part is when I break this fight down is Ferguson. What are the weapons he's going to use? Because that fight with Gaethje, and I think Dariush is going to look at that fight. And he's really going to try to use that fight to his advantage. Because if he goes out there and just tries to off the bat wrestle Tony Ferguson, I think that may be some trouble. Because when they're dry, when no one's sweaty, and then Ferguson uh, is like most explosive like both of them are. But... I feel like Ferguson is going to be aware of the shot in the first couple of rounds. Because Dariush, even though he is a great grappler, his wrestling has never been super, super like uh, consistent. It's 42% accuracy. And um, the 32% accuracy takedown offense. So it's not that great. But Tony Ferguson's 70% takedown defense is pretty good. But in my head, like I never think of like, oh, Tony Ferguson's wrestling is like defensively is, like, amazing or anything. Oh, he... And Dariush, I think, um... It, it'll be important for him to clinch. Because, like, Ferguson, I think that's where he has the least amount of offense. Put him against the fence. Try to clinch him as much as you can. And for Ferguson, I think he should try to explore his kicking game. Because it's something that I think he left out entirely against Gagey. Because against, um, Gagey, I felt like he was kind of going more boxing attack. And Tony, the thing that's special about him is really just his creativity and his movement combining with the kicks. And that could really get somebody frustrated, right? When you're standing at range and you're waiting to counter punch Tony Ferguson and he's throwing like five kicks at you and you don't know what kick is coming at you, it's going to be hard to be patient. So I think he's going to have to do that. Dariush, I think he's going to have to really pick his shots. He's got to be sound defensively. Um, make sure he's in his stance because Tony really at his best he does well when everything gets super super chaotic and Dariush really f- slow down the pace if he could get the takedown that's great and but he has to keep Tony on his back because Ferguson will create scrambles using his jiu-jitsu background and his wrestling and it'll just get Dariush more tired 
And really, that's just basically, I think, what the fight comes down to is can Tony Ferguson cook Bernardo Darush enough to get a, a late finish or to even get a win? Because Darush, uh, don't get any question about it, he has been tired in fights. Um, you know, I remember when he fought, um, I'm trying to remember his name. I definitely remember when he fought Jakar Close. It was in the beginning of the year on the same card as Joanna versus um, Wei Li. Let me see. And he got the back of... He got the back, I remember, of um, of Jakar. And he got really, really tired. Like, his legs were gassed. And I remember he did get hit by a guy who's not really known for being a big puncher at all. And um and of course, and then um he got and I attribute him getting hurt to his tiredness and he couldn't move really. Like he had a hard time using his footwork. And then he had that fight with Evan Dunham where he got tired again and then he um it was to a draw. So I do think that Tony Ferguson has a way in. But he cannot rush in with punches. He's got to be aware of the leg kicks and the body kicks of Benio Dariush. And he's got to pick at him with range. And Tony has a longer reach. And Tony at his best is when he's backing up the guy at the end of his punches. The 76-inch reach will he have a 4-inch reach advantage on. And um, he's got he's to gotta use that to pick at Benio. And I think it could work. And if Benio wants to wrestle, Tony has to be at least be able to create scrambles or just stuff the head as much as he can because Darius will go for the typical wrestler takedown, the double leg, single leg, things like that. And I do think Tony could create some scrambles or at least drop his weight on him as much as he can. And if he could... Usually Tony Ferguson, like his fights is he, he moves around, he hits a guy with like a huge shot and then the guy... He's trying to survive, and then he's beating up their body, things like that. And he just keeps cooking them, and then he hits them with another big shot. And then the guy gives in to either uh, like go for a takedown. The takedown gets stuffed, and then he chokes you or something like that. So that's why I think um, there's definitely a path for victory for Tony Ferguson in this fight. And betting-wise, I think this is this card is not the greatest for betting, to be honest. Because Tony Ferguson is a plus-135, and Bernardo Darius is a minus-165. And I do feel fairly confident that Bonillo will be patient and he will fight at range and maybe he'll get a little hairy once in a while, but I do think he'll get the win. Um, and Tony could always, always create that chaos, no matter what. Because Bonillo, you know, no matter the level of competition he fights, that dog in him and the, could be brought out as long as you get him tired or hurt. And Tony succeeds in those type of areas. So I think that... um. The values on Tony Ferguson, plus 135, get Tony Ferguson is very rare. Especially coming on the two-fight losing streak. And I do think there's a path for both guys to win. And I do think there's a path for Tony to win. And Benio has shown the beginning steps of that path. But, uh, you know, um, Tony Ferguson could 100% pull something off in this fight. So moving on to the main event, let me take out my notes. Number three ranked Charles Dubronx Oliveira, 30 and 8, versus number four ranked Michael Iron Michael Chandler, 22 and 5. So, Oliveira, we gotta know, he's been fighting in the UC since 2010. 
when he was like um how old he was 20 years old where he came in mostly as a great jiu-jitsu artist very strong he fought a lightweight then moved down a featherweight and he's kind of had a mixed bag of featherweight right he he lost to anthony pettis via submission um and lightweight he lost to jim miller via knee bar he lost to cup swanson via tko so we all thought this guy oh he's gonna be a gatekeeper he's very good um, he's always had really good knees and elbows and long and tall for the division. Good kicks, but yeah, that's how he's gonna be. He's he's never gonna fight for the title per se, right? That's that's what we all thought. Then he moves up to 155 pounds. He fights Will Brooks, taps that guy out. Will Brooks, former Bellator champion, beated Michael Chandler for the belt. Literally, this like one fight later, he fights Charles Oliveira, gets taken down, a very good wrestler, and it, Charles gets on the back and taps him out on the back. And then Charles goes on a lightweight, he runs into Paul Felder, Paul Felder beats him, Felder was able to weather the submission storm in round one, then round two comes, he hits him with a very good elbow, Charles goes down and he finishes him off with ground and pound. And I look at that fight, and I look at I think Chandler could reenact that somewhat. Because Chandler's also another strong physical fighter, kind of like Paul Felder. And and Charles, he has a 74-inch reach, you know, BJJ black belt, very young. But we never thought, like, oh, he uses this reach to his greatest until he fought a lightweight. Like, now he's just, like, knocking dudes out. Very good guys, like Jared Gordon and... Um, he rocked Daniel Tamer, who is a very phenomenal striker, kickboxer. Yeah, excellent stuff. And he basically, I know Kevin Lee, he submitted, and Tony Ferguson, he decision. But the Kevin Lee fight, that's the fight I look at when I see him versus Michael Chandler. What 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 can Oliveira do to, what opponent similar to Michael Chandler? I look at the Kevin Lee fight, the Jim Miller fight. Wrestlers, right? Chandler is a wrestler in nature. And he always talks about that. He talks about how wrestling has given him this base for athletically and personally and how it's made him a family man and things like that, which Michael Chandler is... It's hard not to root for the guy. He's such a great dude. Family man. Um, always speaks well. Super nice. Um, I always hear great things about him. And Chandler, former Bellator champion at lightweight. I believe he's the three... Two-time Bellator champion. Three-time Bellator champion. Um, one thing to note that this is this is my second time breaking down Michael Chandler. Uh, very explosive. In and out. Very in and out. He'll throw the jab, be in and out. Throw the cross, be in and out. Very wide stance, which I think is going to be a play a big part in this fight for both of them. And great wrestling background. You know, he, he'll throw a cross, go into a double leg, things like that. He, he typically loves the, um, the lower body takedowns, like the double legs and single legs. And his motto, and I love it, it's um, simplicity with 100% brutality. So he doesn't do anything really crazy, you know. He switches stance once in a while now. Uh, you know, he did against Dan Hooker, which was great, against Benson Henderson. You know, he threw the right hand, and then he came over for a left straight or a left hook on both of those guys. And um, it's just simplicity, and it's really terrific to watch. And I really admire the game of Michael Chandler, and it's excellent. And I think... The height of Charles Oliveira will not be a problem for him because it wasn't a problem with Dan Hooker. And Dan Hooker, I believe, is a little bit longer than Charles. But I do think the weapons of Charles Oliveira could give him problems because 
and, and with Michael Chandler, you gotta walk this fine line when you're striking with him because he's so explosive and he's so fast. And I do think in at least the beginning of the fight with no grappling or no damage, he will be the faster guy between the two of them. And I think Oliveira distance will play a huge part for both of them. Because Michael Chandler, even though he does have great leg kicks and, you know, his body kicks are pretty good, he's going to have to get really close. And he stands very, very low. So he's going to have to get even closer because he's not as tall. And he likes it because his stance, one, is great for power, right? You generate more torque when you're lower in base, right? Right? You don't see, like, baseball players, like, stand up straight, like, knees locked, right? Same thing with football, any sport. And Chandler gets really, really low. They deliver that power, and it's amazing, it's great. And he's a lot of weight on those legs. And Charles Oliveira is like the opposite, right? He likes to stand tall, um, feet close together, to throw his leg kicks, his body kicks. He kicks from both legs, which I think is, he's going to need. And he works the body excellently. And I think that may be a key for both of them. And I definitely think Michael Chandler is going to try to throw body shots at Charles Oliveira because every single footage they show Michael Chandler training or they show him talking to somebody about training he they always talk about the coach always talks about body shots constantly over and over again and i think he will do it if he get close of course and for with charles the distance thing it really doesn't matter because chandler doesn't throw like spinning kicks or side kicks or anything and charles does like charles will will throw jabs crosses left hooks to the body to the head Knees to the body, knees to the head, clinched knees, elbows. He'll like do like a fake the right hand and he'll come off an elbow up your guard and switch stance with it. He'll do spinning side kick to the face. He'll do like the karate kick kick, the crane kick. He'll do that too. Um, and he just has so many tools in the toolbox, flying knees, things like that. And um, Chandler, typically it's his boxing that gets the work done. He does have terrific... Uh, ground and pound, and I'm going to talk a little bit about that soon. And I think for Oliveira, the distance will be huge because Chandler, he'll bounce, 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 bounce. Out of he'll kind of be a little bit out of range. Then he'll settle, and you're almost like one. He's one step closer to you, like he could just take one step and he's right there to punch you. And Cody Garbrandt was always like this because he's also a very explosive fighter, and um. He'll bounce, and then he'll stay, and then he's kind of that range where one step he'll hit you. And I think when he's at that one step, you got to do either two things. He's at that one step, you got to be ready. Counter, slip the right hand, and then come over your right hand. Or come in with a knee, because even though he's not punching to the body, he is getting very, very low. Um, Even just him standing, because his stance is almost like a wrestling fake itself, right? Like the way he stands is almost like a wrestling stance. And um, Charles, I think he's got to measure that distance. He's got to know that Chandler is waiting to explode. Because even though Michael Chandler is pulling out all these, like, you know, nice toys of switching stance, his left hand knocking people out with Dan Hooker and Benson Henderson and Bellator, um, I think that Charles got to be super aware of that. If he's not, then it's going to be a quick night for him. He's going to get knocked the F out by Michael Chandler's right hand or left hand or body shot or whatever. And um, he's got to be very careful. And I think Charles has shown that, right? Now, like, the difference between Charles at 145 and 155 is that he's more nimble. 
Like, you'll see him, he'll be bouncing, 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 moving left and right very well, throwing counter punches, and he's going to need that 100% against Michael Chandler. Or, when he bounces Michael Chandler, he bounce, 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 stays. As soon as he stops and settles, then you throw the right, because that is how Patricky Pitbull, or Patricia, one of them, uh, these Pitbull brothers who like kind of basically rule Bellator. Chandler has fought both of them. He's beaten one and then he's lost to one. Um, basically, he did that. He waited for the Chandler to settle and then he came over the top of the right hand because Chandler defensively is not the best when it comes to exchanging like punches. Like he typically just throws leather. So I think that would be a huge key for Michael Chandler. I do think the body shots would be huge, and you know Charles Oliveira has never shown a weakness to the body. Except for when he got kicked to the body by Anthony Pettis. But Anthony Pettis basically hurts everybody. And Chandler, like, all his footage. Like, they had this uh, YouTube video that UFC put up called Dean Diaries. Where UFC coach, where um, MMA coach uh, Dean Thomas is training Michael Chandler. Talking a little bit with him. And they do some fight footage of Charles Oliveira. And they talk about how... um. You know, he's open to the body. And then Henry Hooved is talking to Dean Thomas and saying, Oh, you know what's special about Michael is that his, his body punching. There's nobody in the, the division who punches like him to the body. So, I'm like, this is pretty obvious. He's going to punch to the body. And then he's going to try to lower the guard of Charles Oliveira. So for Charles, if he can keep that distance, all that body shots, everything, switch stance, anything Michael does, basically will kind of be negated. And... Really, for me, I would like to see Oliveira try to um, occupy the center. Kind of like what I said about Barboza. I would like to see him throw front kicks down the middle, knees up the middle. Try to get Michael Chandler occupied with that. Get him to step, set in, and then throw the right. Or throw a flying knee or anything. Get him to set and then go for your um, stronger strikes. I think he could get Chandler frustrated. And also, Michael Chandler, like, um, one thing to talk about is the gas tank of both of these fellows. Because Charles has never shown, he's never gassed, like, ever in a fight. I've never seen him get tired in three rounds, like, ever. But um, five-round fight, Charles Oliveira's never been, uh, he's been, um, what's it called? He's been signed to fight five-round fights, like, against Max Holloway. But then, you know, he got injured in the middle of the first round of that fight and things like that. So, you got to question, can Charles go five rounds? He's shown enough that he could go, definitely go a hard three. And then I look at um, two things. First is the um, three things. The, also, the leg kicks of Charles Oliveira are very, very good. Very good, very fast, non-telegraphic. He's very light on his feet. He just taps, bang, gets out of the way. I think that's going to be a huge part in this Chandler fight. And also his ability to go up to the head and especially go with front kicks because um, he's hurt people with them. I know Chandler doesn't think of any of them, anything of them because he said in an interview that he does not think of anything of uh, Charles Oliveira's flying techniques. Even though he did hurt David Taymor with the flying crane kick. And then he finished him off with an elbow to the head. So Chandler's got to be careful with that. Especially with... That low stance, right? His head is already getting very low to the legs of Charles Oliveira. And then Charles, he, um, you know, he could get Chandler to stand up a little bit straighter. And then the wrestling won't be as quick. The striking won't be as fast. It won't be as powerful. It'll be a little bit more telegraphic. You're just getting him out of his game. 
And I think that could be huge. Um, for Michael Chandler, the question is, does he want to wrestle? That will play a huge part because Chandler, like, as I said, his stance is very wrestler-based. But if the guy doesn't care about getting taken down, then it doesn't matter, really. Like, like you know, like, we get into fighters like Frankie Edgar. Like, his striking is meant to be built off of his wrestling. So if he can't get the wrestling going, usually he will have to work double as hard in striking. Chandler's just like that. So I'm curious to see what is Chandler's approach. I do think he's going to take Charles Oliveira down because Michael Chandler has basically always tried to use his wrestling as a as some kind of um, offensive tool in every fight. And so now if Chandler's going to take him down, if this fight goes long, I definitely think... If this fight goes longer than three minutes, I definitely think Chandler's going to... Going to try to take him down, 100%. Now, how will Chandler do on the ground? That's the question. So a lot of people, like, I know the some of the UFC analysts like to point out that, you know, Michael Chandler's fought some very good grapplers like Marcin Held and Brent Permis and some other guys, Benson Henderson, um, the Japanese guy. I'm trying to remember. He's also very good. But those guys are always very good at either being on top, like my, like Benson Henderson, or very good on being on the back, like Brent Primus or Marcin Held was very good at being on the back or being on top. And those are specific positions. Charles has the most submissions in UFC history with 19 wins via submission. And of course, he's been adding on eight KOs. Um, so he is a great finisher. I think he has like the most finishes in UFC history, most submissions in UFC history. So Chan will be fighting the best grappler he's fought. And then he's also fighting a guy who has offense in literally every position ever. Like, on his back, on the guard, on top he's very good with ground and pound and submissions. On on Michael Chan, on the opponent's back he's very good. Like, Chan, like Oliveira has wins via triangle, armbar, guillotine, anaconda choke, darts choke, calf slicer. Like, he has so many submission wins. And he could do it... Uh, backpack like he's on the back while you're standing or he could do it on the ground it's brilliant and then before he used to give up like tons of positions to get a submission but now you'll see him he ground and pounds guys he'll try to stay on top things like that and for me I don't think because Michael Chandler's never been submitted and I'll be surprised if Oliver is able to submit him because Chandler does some like funky stuff to get out of those submissions and I think he has really good defense Chandler individually but a lot of people look at that Michael Chandler loves to push a pace, right? Like, you look at him, he's a physical specimen. I'm sure he works very hard. But that guy goes 0 to 100 every fight. Like, there's no fight that, that has not changed with him at all. The, the Dan Hooker fight, the Benson Henderson fights, the Brent Primus fights, the Pitbull fights, both the both brothers, um, the Dave Rickles fight. Every fight, he always goes forward. And he goes crazy. <clears throat> and he's going 0-100 all the time. And I think that if you reward him for doing that. So like you're getting hit. You're dropping. You're trying to survive. You're, you're getting taken down. He's, um, he's, he's on top and mound. He's ground and pounding you. Things like that. And then I think that um, his gassing is great. But if he tries to hit you. He misses. You hit him. He gets hurt a little bit. Or you chop his leg. Every time he steps, it's harder for him to move. Or he takes you down. And then you're sweeping him. You're offsetting his base. Which he has a very good base. 
or he's constantly in submission and then you got his back and now he has to fight again. That is when I think his gas tank will start to wane. When it's out of his control. When he is not being rewarded. And that's what I thought Dan Hooker was going to do. Because I thought Dan Hooker was going to... When Channel shoots knee to the head. He's far away. Jabs. Light kicks. But he I felt like Hooker had to somewhat lower his offense. Because of the takedown threat of Michael Chandler. And Charles Oliveira, I don't... He says it himself. He goes, this fight's going to be striking. If he wants to take me down, even better. But I think for Charles... He understands that he could afford to be like, if they're striking, to say in his mind, we're just striking. He wants to take me down, go ahead. And I think that's going to create an offensive monster in Charles Oliveira. And for Chandler, where does he fit in that? So, of course, the body shots. If he could take him down and stay safe, that could be huge, like I said before. And then the right hand over the top of Oliveira's left jab, because... When Charles was at featherweight, <coughs> he would easily get cracked with the right hand because he would jab and then kind of leave it out. And guys like way shorter than him, like Cub Swanson and Frank Edgar, were continuously able to throw the right hand over the top. But now it seems like he has an answer for that because when he fought Kevin Lee, who is exactly trying to do the same thing as those guys, who has a longer reach than Chandler, and who I think is maybe fundamentally a better striker, I think Char- Chandler's a more explosive athlete, a uh, better finisher than Kevin Lee. But uh, Kevin Lee, I do think, has better fundamental striking. You will see that he throws the right hand over the top and he keeps getting clipped with left hooks. Or, or Charles will, will block the right hand, come close distance and start throwing knees. Or, um, or even Jared Gordon, a teammate of Michael Chandler, was pressing forward, kind of like how I see Michael Chandler doing, throwing the right hand. And then Charles slips the right hand, throws his right hand at the same time, and then knocks Gordon out. So Chandler, that's why I feel like Chandler 100% could win this fight and plus 110 underdog. I do like his chances very much. But it's just like he has to walk a tighter line than Charles Oliveira does. And then going back to the ground game, for me, um, this is the part where I really think that the expectations are a little bit weird because we don't know what to think. Michael Chandler has terrific ground and pound, especially when guys are trying to get up. And he has great ground and pound in the sense of it's almost like he's teaching like a self-defense course. Like he separates postures up really high, not in the guard though. When a guy's up against the fence usually or in a wrestle position, and he'll just stuff the head. Like he'll push somebody's head to the floor to keep them down, and then he just keep hitting, and he'll like literally be standing up, so that he's ready to punch you again as you stand. And I don't know if that's gonna like do well against Oliveira because Chandler doesn't really pass the guard. If you watch any of his fights against those any of those guys who are great grapplers and he takes them down, <clears throat> I have never remembered a time where he started passing, ever. The times where he, people get in trouble is when he pushes them against the fence and the guy is tempted to get up and then he starts pushing their head and punching them. But when it's in the guard, straight up in the guard, against the fence, nobody's trying to get up. The guy's just on, the, in the, on his back. His ground and pound is uh, okay. It's not really even there. And he almost never passes. Ever. He will... Usually it happens when a guy throws up a submission and he'll try to like throw the legs. But he never makes like an actual effort to pass. <clears throat> so I think that if Charles 
gets taken down and tries to upset the base of Michael Chandler or tries to submit him or sweep him or something and just gets him to move, not to settle, get him in submission after submission and end up in a bad position, then I think Charles could wane on the gas tank of Chandler. right? I think the scrambles, putting Chandler in submissions, chopping his legs to make the explosiveness, to make that step a little bit harder will take away the stamina of Michael Chandler. Because Chandler, I know he always talks about, oh, I'm going to push the pace, whatever. But the rule applies to him very much that you should never put up a pace that you're not going to be able to keep long term. And he does that a lot. And that's what this fight, I feel like, comes down to also is like um, two things, right? I I broke down five, but really it's um, the two things, these two things follow amongst everything. Is one, the efficiency of Charles Oliveira, right? He has tools in everywhere. And he uses them great. Great distance, great athleticism and all. And then he has tools on the ground. And I know, I feel like um, some people are underestimating the wrestling of Charles a little bit. Because everybody's like, oh, he has no takedown defense. So Chandler, you could just take him down if you want and get him tired. But one, if he ends up in the guard, Chandler's going to be the one to get tired. And then two... Charles, a lot of people always say that the guy in wrestling is deceptively strong. Like, you could see it when he has guys a hold. He just freaking pulls them. This guy took down Kevin Lee for crying out loud. And, uh, but for me, the thing that really scares me for Charles Oliveira, it's kind of like Conor McGregor with Dustin Poirier, right? Dustin doesn't do, usually doesn't do well against big punchers. That's what we all thought. Is that... Michael Chandler, you cannot question this dude's heart. Like, he will go on and on. The only time I think maybe you could question is when he was getting beat up by Will Brooks and we kind of had, like, a no-moss situation where he, like, he couldn't keep going. He kind of like, forgot where he was. Um, you, you will not see Charles Lever do that usually. Like, that's the perception we all have of him and I have of him is that when things get tough and you could cut him... You could hurt him on the ground, anything, get out of submissions. That is the thought process we had is that this guy will give up. This guy will wilt because you hit him with a big shot, oh, he'll go down. Like His durability or his heart or whatever has always been in question. Michael Chandler is not. And Michael Chandler, I feel like he knows that that's what he's going to try to bring out. He's going to try to bring that out of Charles. And what is Oliveira's answer? Of course, his, his efficiency. If you're efficient and you're never put in that... That tough question, then you're okay, right? But also, I think at 155, maybe Charles is a little bit different when it comes to answering those questions. Because there's fights like, you know, like Tony Ferguson illegally kicked him in the face. (coughs) Excuse me. And then he got cut. And I know that's not a big deal, maybe for some people. But Charles just got back to work. Kept fighting, kept fighting. Controlled Tony Ferguson the whole fight. Um, did a great, terrific, smart fight. Didn't get out of control at all. He fought Daniel David Tamer. Tamer, he was taunting him. And then he literally gets hit by this huge shot. He goes down. Charles recovers within that round. To then rock, hurt Tamer. To get Tamer to shoot and get choked out by him. So, and then, uh, you know, of course the competition, I think, for Charles has been getting a lot better. And then... There's always that question of like, oh, Michael Chandler's fought a Bellator. So, oh, is the competition not as good? I'm not going to look at that because I do think Michael Chandler, 
I think he feels like he knows what he has to do to win. Wilkie, I have no idea. To be honest, I may, um, you know, plus one ten. I'm, I'm, it's gonna be like the Masvidal thing. I think I'm gonna. I, I wouldn't mind sprinkling some cash on that. You know, Charles, I think has could afford more mistakes because his game plays in more. I think that the reason why Charles just kind of I don't know, quote unquote, gave up in those fights is because when the fight was going out of the realm of him winning, he would give up. But now I think that him winning from any spot has gone wider. Like, he gets cut, I still think he he believes he can win. It starts to become a firefight, I still think he believes he can win. He gets taken down, he can't get a takedown, I still think he believes he can win. So I think that his his idea where he can win the fight, what points in the fight he can win, I think it has gone a lot wider. So that's why I think... um. That's why I, I, I'm not sure about Michael Chandler saying. I definitely think Chandler could do it, though. I think Chandler's got a great set of tools to win, right? If, if things get weird and Oliveira decides to take it from down, I think Chandler could always defend um, as long as he doesn't end up in the guard because, to be honest, I'm, I'm very confident that Chandler will not do well in the guard of Charles Oliveira because... When have we ever seen Chandler ever pass the guard or have terrific ground and pound from the guard? And um, and uh, Chandler, of course, the right hand, the left hook is always great for him. Especially the right hand coming over the top of Charles Oliveira's left hand, left shoulder, and then the body shots. But all of that predicates on him getting close. And if he can, and really for me, I think, if you're Charles Oliveira and you want to prevent any of that from happening, I think you push back Michael Chandler like crazy. Like, you push him back like how you pushed back Kevin Lee. You're just marauding him, beating him up to the body, beating him up to the head, chopping his legs whenever he enters in with jabs, um, getting him confused, forcing him to take you down. I think that's the key to... um, That's, like, the smoothest way Charles can win. I think for Chandler, he's... There is going to be some trouble. And I don't think he's afraid of it. And I think he's going to try to really brutalize Charles Oliveira. And I think his chances are very good. And at underdog money, I, I think... Uh, you know, I think Charles, I think Chandler has a great shot at winning. Of course. And uh, that'll be the end of my podcast, guys. And uh, for this episode. We'll see you at UFC 263. Hopefully it'll still be Marvin Vittori versus Israel Adesanya with Leon Edwards versus Nate Diaz from Flyweight Champion Figueiredo versus Brandon Moreno too. I hope you guys enjoyed listening. Try to watch this one. This one's going to be really good. This card's going to be really, really special, I believe. And uh, thank you guys for listening to me chat about this. Thank you. Hello, everybody. This is post-production, James speaking. Maybe you thought that the podcast was ending, but... Instead of the the nice theme song we have, you hear my lovely voice. I was um, listening back on the podcast, and I noticed that I didn't really give a pick, and I was sitting on the fence. And I'm not saying I'm going to give a pick. I'm going to say the result that I'm leaning towards for the main event and why. It's going to be very quick. We could get onto that beautiful music that we had composed for us. But um, I believe I'm leaning towards Michael Chandler to win very, very early. Like, in the first round early. Um, I just feel like Chandler's right hand and his left hook are going to somewhat play a big part. And 
Also, his speed. I think he's going to possibly um, disrupt the timing of Charles Oliveira. And as I said before on the breakdown, you know, the main part of this podcast, I believe, that um, Charles is very good at measuring distance and has very good striking tools to stifle Chandler and his jiu-jitsu should be able to equal the playing field in the striking against Michael Chandler because Michael Chandler likes to use his wrestling to, um, you know, his wrestling fakes, the threat of wrestling to set up his striking. And you would think Charles is not going to have, he's not going to feel threatened at all. And I, I don't think he's going to be threatened. But I just feel like um, Michael Chandler, this guy has a championship mentality that he's going to go into it. And to be honest, I, no offense to Charles Oliveira, I do think very, very high of him, highly of him. And every time, and this happens to me every time Charles Oliveira fights, um, you know, when he fought Tony Ferguson, when he fought Kevin Lee, when he fought Jared Gordon even, I kind of thought like, oh, this guy is going to will. Like, I feel like the pressure will get to him. And I just feel the same way about this Michael Chandler fight as I did when he fought Tony Ferguson and some other guys. I, I feel like Charles is, I, I just feel like um, he's going to get, he's going to let the moment get to him somehow. Mainly, that's the reason. You know, of course, there's the physical reasons, and I don't like any of that. Oh, oh, mentally, they're not there or whatever. That's just how I feel. Um, I would like to see Charles Oliveira perform to the highest, and he's shown he's proven me wrong every time. Basically, uh, every fight that he has had in his last eight fights, he has proven me wrong. But um, that's how I feel. I, I feel like Chandler has that championship mentality, um, and he's gonna question Charles and I feel like Charles isn't going to be able to answer kind of like but take a grain of salt that's what I thought um and every single Charles Oliveira fight for the last 10 fights basically I thought that he was going to wilt and um you know I just say this because Michael Chandler right now staring at the screen is like a plus 115 underdog which you know is pretty good pretty okay um so that's how I feel but if Michael Chandler cannot get Charles Oliveira out in the first five minutes expect Oliveira's efficiency to pull through, but that's what I'm leaning towards. I'm leaning towards Chandler early, just because I feel like Oliveira is gonna let the moment get to him or something. You know, kind of what I thought of his last couple fights. Now is really thank you and thank you for listening, and uh, see you um very soon, guys. And play the music, Jake. I said, play the music, Jake. Thank you for listening to the podcast. If you like what you were listening to, please subscribe to Fans Assemble. And if you can, please give us a rating. Do it for the audio world. They need you. Thank you.